Good morning. We're going to share in the Lord's table in just a moment. And the Lord's table is always a reminder of the good news of Jesus Christ. And central to understanding rightly the good news of Jesus Christ is rightly understanding and distinguishing between law and gospel. Between God's righteous demand and God's gracious provision. So that is what I want us to consider this morning. Law and gospel. Now, Lord willing, we'll jump into Colossians next week and begin a study of that great book. But this morning, I want us to consider a topical subject, law and gospel. What then is the law and what then is the gospel? How are they different? What is their purpose? And what is the spiritual danger to us if we confuse them or conflate them? We're going to seek to answer these questions this morning from God's Word. But before we look at law and gospel individually, I want to read a passage of Scripture this morning that places these two very different biblical categories of law and gospel side by side. So turn along with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3. 21 through 28. Martin Luther said of this set of verses we're about to read, he says, the chief point and the very central place of the epistle to the Romans and of the whole Bible is contained in this text. That's pretty important. The great commentator Leon Morris, biblical scholar, said this about this paragraph. It is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Not just in the Bible, ever written. High praise. So let's look at it. Romans 3, 21 through 28. The Apostle Paul writes, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace, Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart 
from works of the law. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, help us today as we seek to understand these two main biblical categories of law and gospel. Help us to rightly distinguish them, understand them, and apply them to our lives appropriately. Give us insight by your Spirit into your Word this morning that we may understand our condition before you, our standing with you, and our goal in this life as we walk with you. Teach us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Law and gospel. Understanding law and gospel are basic to understanding how it is that we, as sinful creatures, can be made right with God. These two principles, law and gospel, are also fundamental to properly reading, interpreting, and understanding and applying the scriptures to our lives. If we confuse or misunderstand or conflate law and gospel, we will go astray in our understanding and in our application of the scriptures. How important is this distinction? Let me paraphrase Spurgeon slightly. Charles Spurgeon said this, I am persuaded that most of the mistakes that men make concerning the doctrine of Scripture are based upon fundamental errors with regard to law and gospel. Let me paraphrase him again. He who well understands the distinction between law and gospel is a master of divinity. It's pretty important. So let's break these two key biblical concepts down and seek to understand each of them better. First, we're going to look at the law, and then we're going to look at the gospel. Law, first of all. Law, it is what God justly requires of us. Law is what God justly requires of us. Now, one of the most prevalent meanings of the word law in Scripture is in reference to, of course, the law of Moses. The law is relating to the Mosaic Covenant and summarized in the Ten Commandments. And while that is included in what I'm talking about when I speak of law in reference to law and gospel, that is not the limit of what we're talking about with reference to law. The law, part of law and gospel, has reference to whatever it is that God requires of us. It is what God justly requires and demands of us. And of course, whatever God requires of us is always just. Right? God is our creator. He is holy, just, and righteous, and good. And whatever he requires of us is always just. We can't say it's unfair. We can't say it doesn't make sense. We can't say you have no right. God has every right to require of us whatever it is he wills. 
So the law is all the commands of Scripture, all the demands that God has placed upon us as his special creatures created in his image. These demands that God placed upon us started out very simple and very few in number. In fact, you remember, in the very beginning, there was only one law. One rule, right? Go back to Genesis chapter 2. We studied that together. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, okay, this is a law, commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it you will surely die. In essence, God was saying, do what I say and you will live. It will go well with you. You will live, but disobey my law, and you will die. Surely you will die. Well, we know what happened. Adam and Eve disobeyed God's one command, and so plunged the whole human race into sin and the curse of sin. And so their disobedience brought death both physical and spiritual, unto all humanity. And we are all sons and daughters of Adam. God's commands, his law, of course, as we know, became more numerous as God revealed more and more of his own holiness and righteousness to humanity. So that in the course of time, in the giving of the law of Moses, the Mosaic Covenant came 613 different commands. These 613 laws of God can be summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. From Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. Let me just remind you what those are. This is the law of God. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make, worship, or serve any idols or images. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness or lie. And finally, you shall not covet these Ten Commandments, as we know, can be further broken down into just two. Okay, so now we're getting close to what Adam and Eve had, right? Two commandments. Love God. The, of the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments are covered in that. Love God and then love your neighbor. Commandments 6 through 10. Love God, love your neighbor. But we shouldn't be thinking that God's law is limited to the Old Testament only. Or that it's limited to the Mosaic Covenant. 
or that God's law is limited to the Ten Commandments. God's law is revealed throughout the Bible, including the New Testament. In fact, it's been estimated that there are about 1,050 commands in the New Testament for Christians to obey. 1,050. Due to repetitions, they can be classified under about 800 different headings. Okay, so you got some repetition in there, so you go from 1,050 to 800 different commands in the New Testament. So there are technically more commands in the New Testament than there are under the Old Covenant. So don't be thinking, ah, yeah, yeah, I know, law and gospel, right. Old Testament, New Testament. No. So the law in law and gospel refers to what, whatever God justly requires of us. And it includes all that God commands and demands from us. Now look with me at Romans chapter 2 and verse 13. Romans 2.13. Paul says there, he says, It is not the hearers of the law who are just before God. Who are right before God. But the doers of the law will be justified. Now what is Paul saying? Well, Paul is making a specific point particularly in relation to the Jewish nation who received the law. The law came through Moses, right? They received the law of God, the Abraham or the, the Mosaic law, those 613 commands. But it wasn't enough just to have it, to be in possession of it, to hear it regularly. That's not how you are justified before God. The one who is justified before God is the doer of the law. In order to be right with God, Paul says here, one must be a doer of the law. Obedience to God's law is what God justly requires of us. And so Paul here presents a kind of hypothetical situation. It's a theoretical situation. And he says, the one who does the law will be justified, will be made right with God, will be right with God. Now here's the question. Is it possible for us to be a perfect doer of the law? Class? Correct answer. No. It is not possible. That's why it's a hypothetical. Were it possible, the way to be right with God and maintain that rightness with God would be to do all that God has commanded. That's all Adam and Eve had to do, and they had one law to follow. Pretty simple. Eat freely from everything else, but don't eat from that tree. They couldn't do it. You see, the law of God is perfect. And the law of God requires personal, perpetual, 
and perfect obedience from the heart. I'm going to say that again, and you'll hear it several times today. The law of God requires from us personal, perpetual, and perfect obedience from the heart. So that each person, every moment of every day, must fulfill every law to a T and do so fully from the heart. Now, does that sound doable to you? No. Adam and Eve, our first parents, in their perfect created state, without a sin nature, weren't even able to obey a single command of God for very long before they got themselves into trouble and broke God's law. And our natural spiritual condition is far worse than their original created spiritual condition. If they couldn't do it with one law, we certainly can't with a host of laws. So in order to have peace with God and to be right with God, one would have to personally, perpetually, and perfectly obey God's law throughout one's lifetime with not even so much as a single slip. Let me show you another example of this. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10. We have this lawyer questioning Jesus. He's he's not actually coming in good faith with a good faith question. He's trying to trip Jesus up. He's trying to catch Jesus. Stump Jesus. Make Jesus look foolish. Luke 10, 25. By the way, this passage is, and the the issue here is very similar to the one where we read of the rich young ruler. But let's look at this one. Luke 10, 25. And a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test. Okay, that's how we know, right? He's putting Jesus to the test. Saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. And so Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? The law. The law. How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Is Jesus teaching salvation by works? Huh? But wishing to justify himself... Verse 29, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So the question comes to Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The man answers. Jesus says, well, what does the Bible say? 
What does the law say? Well, you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Do this and you will live, Jesus answers. In essence, Jesus was saying, right answer. Now I dare you to go and do it. Just give it a try. If you really understand what's being required of you in those two commands, love God, love neighbor, knock yourself out. Just try it. I think Jesus is being somewhat facetious here, knowing the intent and the heart of the individual who's coming to him, trying to trip him up. Love God perfectly, Jesus says. Love God perfectly and unceasingly and love your neighbor perfectly and consistently and you will live. Now go give it a try and get back to me and tell me how it goes. Well, the man immediately tries to justify himself with the question, well, it's all very complicated. I mean, who really is my neighbor? He immediately wants to limit the requirements of the law by narrowly defining who his neighbor is. My neighbor is the people I like. My my neighbor is the people who are like me. And Jesus blows that out of the water, right? With the parable of the Good Samaritan. The point of all this is that the just demands of God's law are beyond our ability to obey. If we could do this, we would live. We would not be guilty before a holy God. But it's just hypothetical. It's just theoretical because we can't do this. And therefore, we can't live. If we could love God and love our neighbor personally, perfectly, perpetually, we would be right with God. But the scriptures are abundantly clear that no one can do this. We are all sons of Adam, and as such, we have inherited his sinful ways. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all failed to obey the law personally, perfectly, and perpetually. And that is precisely what is required of us. James 2.10 tells us, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. That's how the law works. It's a unit. It all goes together. It's not a buffet. and We get to pick and choose the things we want to obey. You offend in one area, you've offended in totality. And the result of disobeying God's law is that we all stand guilty and condemned before God. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. And so the law of God leaves us defenseless, leaves us without excuse, leaves us utterly condemned before a holy God. If the gospel is the good news, and it is, then the law is the bad news. 
But that doesn't make the law bad. So don't go there. The law of God is simply a reflection of God himself. The law is the revelation of God's righteous standard of holiness. And so God says to us, as his creatures, created in his image, he says, be holy as I am holy. Anybody here able to do that? Is that law or gospel? That's law. Be holy as I am holy. But God's law is not the problem. God's law is good. Romans 7.12 says, The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Just as God is holy and righteous and good. His law is holy, righteous, and good. 1 Timothy 1.8 says, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Correctly. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is with us. We can't keep it. We can't do it. We can't do this and live. And so we stand, all of us, guilty, condemned, and deserving of God's just punishment for sin. So that is the law part of law and gospel. The law is what God justly requires of us, and it is what we cannot personally, perfectly, and perpetually fulfill, which is exactly what God justly demands of us. So the law leaves us condemned, guilty before God. All right, let's look at gospel. That's law. Let's look at gospel. Gospel is what God graciously provides for us. If you're feeling relief already, you should be. Gospel is what God graciously provides for us in meeting the just requirements of the law on our behalf. If law is what God justly requires of us, and if what God requires of us is the personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience of his law, then gospel is God's gracious promise to provide for us what we lack. The gospel is God's promise to provide all the great blessings of his salvation offered to us freely, fully, presently, and particularly in Christ Jesus. Whereas the law requires personal, perfect, perpetual obedience, God in the offer of the gospel offers to us all the blessings of salvation freely, fully, presently, and particularly. Martin Luther's close friend and associate, Philip Melanchthon, wrote this. He said, the law shows the disease, the gospel shows the cure. The law shows the disease, the gospel provides us with the cure. Now again, we might be tempted to think that the law is the Old Testament, whereas the gospel's in the New Testament. 
Well, we've already seen that this isn't true regarding law because the New Testament is filled with all kinds of commands and demands and imperatives for us to obey. Likewise, we may think that the gospel is only in the New Testament where we learn about Jesus particularly, but we would be wrong about that. The gospel is found throughout the scriptures. And everywhere and at all times, Mankind has always and only been saved through one way, through faith in God's promise. And God's promise, the fullness of it, is found in Jesus Christ. So we see the gospel in the Old Testament. We see it right at the ver- from the very start. Genesis Chapter 3, after Adam and Eve fell, immediately God brings a word of promise, a word of gospel. In Genesis 3.15, God gives the promise that a descendant of Adam and Eve would crush Satan's head, defeating sin and evil and overturning the curse once and for all. This wasn't something Adam and Eve were to do or accomplish themselves. This was God unilaterally promising to bring deliverance. To provide what was lacking. It was not Adam and Eve's responsibility to do, but it was God's promise to do. This is gospel, not law. We also see God's gracious promise to provide for us in meeting the just requirements of the law in the covenant of Abraham. Genesis 12. God promises Abraham. He says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you... Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now we remember from our study of Genesis that the Abrahamic covenant was a unilateral, unconditional promise of God to bless Abraham and to bless all nations in Abraham. Regarding God's promise to Abraham, we're told in Genesis 15, 6 that Abraham believed the Lord And God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved by God's grace through faith in God's promise. Just as we are. Abraham received God's gospel promise by faith. Now fast forward to the New Testament. And we see that Jesus is the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. He is the one who will crush Satan's head. He is the instrument of God's blessing of the nations through Abraham. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Jesus is the sinless son of God who perfectly throughout his lifetime, every day, every moment of his life, fulfilled the law like no other son or daughter of Adam could do. For he did it perfectly. Jesus, in his lifetime, fulfilled all righteousness by every day, personally, perfectly, and perpetually obeying God's 
law. Jesus, therefore, could serve as the sinless substitute for sinners. Receiving the just penalty of death. Death not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. On the cross, Jesus bore God's just wrath against sin. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried, and three days later, he rose from the grave victorious, proving that he was indeed who he claimed to be, the Son of God, and proving that the salvation of believing sinners had been once for all secured. And so the gospel is the good news that God graciously provides for us what his law requires of us and that he's done this through his son, Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. And now the promise of God is that all who trust in his son receive forgiveness and eternal life and all the promise of the gospel are received freely, fully, presently, and particularly by all who believe. Here are some statements of gospel in the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That last bit there, that is God's promise. You believe in Jesus Christ whom God the Father sent in love and you receive eternal life and you will not perish. That's the promise of God. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In all of these passages, the gracious promise of God to provide for us what we lack is received simply by faith, by believing, by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. In the gospel, we have God's gracious promise. His gracious promise to do for us what we could never accomplish on our own or for ourselves. The gospel, then, is what God graciously provides for us in meeting the just requirements of his law. As we have seen this morning, law and gospel couldn't be more different. Law is commandment. Gospel is promise. Law is filled with demands and threatenings for failure to obey, while gospel is filled with promises and blessings that are received simply by faith. Law produces guilt and dread and fear. Gospel produces joy and comfort and peace. I love what Walter Marshall had to say about the differences between law and gospel. 
The difference between the law and the gospel does not at all consist in this, that the one requires perfect doing and the other only sincere doing. But in this, that the one requires doing, the other not doing, but believing for life and salvation. Their terms are different, not only in degree, but in their whole nature. Now, why is it important to to distinguish between law and gospel? Why have I been going on about this? What's the big deal? Well, it is a big deal. When we fail to distinguish properly between law and gospel... Spiritually disastrous things happen. The great reformer Theodore Beza said this of the danger of confusing law and gospel. There has followed little by little the total ruin of the benefit of Jesus Christ. When you confuse those things, when you switch them up, you lose the benefit. Again, Martin Luther said that unless the gospel be plainly discerned from the law, true Christian doctrine cannot be kept sound and uncorrupted. So the degree to which we understand rightly and distinguish properly between law and gospel will directly impact our understanding of God's law, God's gospel, the believer's assurance of salvation, and the proper motivation for ongoing Christian obedience. If we don't rightly understand law, the need to fulfill God's law personally, perfectly, and perpetually We might be misled to think that we can achieve right standing with God through our own merit and righteousness. And we will be lost forever. The law of God is not something that we can go do with half measures and be successful. We are under the law outside of Christ and it demands of us personal perfect and perpetual obedience. If we don't understand gospel as God's gracious provision for us in meeting the just demands of the law, then we will struggle to have assurance of our salvation. Because we're going to slip back into thinking that I've got I've to perform here. I've got to do better. I've got to try harder or I'm not going to make it. That's not gospel. That's law talking. We can be lulled into thinking that our salvation is somehow based upon our performance instead of God's promise. If we don't rightly understand law and gospel, we will not rightly understand how Christian obedience fits into God's plan. We will fail to realize that as Christians, we are now to seek to obey God's law, not out of dread or fear or condemnation, but from a whole new standing and status with God as his beloved children who will never be cast out. 
that we now seek to obey and follow the law out of gratitude for his gracious provision through his son, Jesus Christ, who perfectly fulfilled for us what we can't fulfill for ourselves. And so as Christians now, we seek to obey God's law, not for our justification, but from our justification. We seek to obey God's law now as Christians, not for eternal life, but from eternal life that we possess right now. The life of God working in us. The gospel is not and never has been do more and try harder, but rather rest in what Jesus has perfectly done for you. And so if we don't understand and distinguish law and gospel properly, we will fail to see that our obedience is not the root of our salvation, but it is the fruit of our salvation. We will fail to see that our obedience to God as Christians is fueled by God's grace and guided by God's law. We will fail to see that God's law is no longer filled with threatenings and judgments and condemnation for us, but now is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that God's law is now a gracious guide onto the path of God's wisdom and blessing. If we fail to rightly distinguish and understand law and gospel, we stand to lose the joy and peace and assurance of knowing that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And all the church said, this is the truth of law and gospel. The law's demands have been fully satisfied, fully and we are now free in Christ to seek to obey God's law from a new position of permanent acceptance with God and with a new inner power through the Spirit of God who now resides within us. And so rightly understanding and distinguishing law and gospel is central to rightly understanding the good news of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ, the gospel, where God satisfies his just demands of law-keeping through his Son and offers forgiveness and eternal life to all who will believe on him. Hallelujah, what a Savior. This is the essence of law and gospel. Let us as Christians strive to understand it rightly, to distinguish it properly, and to live and rest in Jesus Christ and his finished work. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Satisfy the just demands of God's law. Oh, how unable we are. Oh, how guilty we are outside of Christ. 
Every day and every hour, we are transgressors. As Paul says in Ephesians, the wrath of God hovers over our head outside of Christ. And we deserve it all. But Father, thank you that in your mercy and grace, you sent your son, Jesus, who every moment of his life was fulfilling all righteousness on our behalf. was doing the law. And then going to the cross as a sinless substitute. Thank you, Jesus, for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves, for fulfilling all righteousness on our behalf, for always doing what was pleasing to the Father in our place. And then on the cross, you, the sinless son of God, taking all of our guilt, all of our sin upon yourself and bearing the full weight of God's wrath that our sins deserve. And then offering to us this great gift of salvation that is received not by works, not by doing, but simply by believing, trusting, resting in what you have done, Jesus. So as we turn to your table, we remember you and we thank you for doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And we simply respond in gratitude and worship. Thank you, Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.